welcome to the Immunet Podcast, a place for educational rheumatology content to improve research and patient care. If you're too busy to read the Immunet newsletters and the win contributions, this podcast is exactly for you. Now you can get updated while on the go. This is a new episode of What is New? Here we highlight new publications in the field of rheumatology. My name is Tu Kraustrup and I'm recording from Aarhus in Denmark and I'm your host today. And remember to participate in the interactive discussions about the selected papers on Twitter. Follow the hashtags, uh, uh, hashtag room for discussion or hashtag win, and of course the official Immunet account. So let us begin. The first contribution is Rheumatoid Arthritis Clinical Research. The title of the paper is Hydroxychloroquine use is not associated with QTC length in a large cohort of SLE and RA patients. And the paper was selected by Olena Simba and she nicely summarizes the findings. So hydroxychloroquine is widely used in rheumatology practice. It has some positive effects on cardiometabolic profiles of patients with RA and lupus. Nonetheless, it's unjustified use for the treatment of COVID-19 patients with subsequent rates of undesirable and life-threatening arrhythmias has raised concerns over its negative effects uh, on the heart conduction system. However, the current cohort study here uh, demonstrated no negative effect of hydroxychloroquine use on QT interval on ECG and its overall cardiovascular safety in our and lupus patients without established cardiovascular disease. This was a large, multi-ethnic, US-based cohort study of uh, 530 RA and SLE patients without known cardiovascular disease. Um, QT interval and heart rate corrected QT values were obtained from uh, a 12-lead ECG. And the overall conclusion is that hydroxychloroquine do not prolong QT interval and do not increase risk of conduction blocks and life-threatening arrhythmias in RA and lupus patients without established cardiovascular disease. So please follow the Twitter discussion um, where you can go and vote based on this study and other studies where we ask the question, does hydroxychloroquine impact on QT interval length in SLE and RA patients without clinical cardiovascular disease? The next contribution is Rheumatoid Arthritis, Basic and Translational Research. And the title of the paper is Loss of Balance Between Protective and Pro-Inflammatory Synovial Tissue T-Cell Polyfunctionality Predates Clinical Onset of Rheumatoid Arthritis. And why did Maria Sokolova pick this particular paper? Well, she states um, that the contribution of T-cells to the development of rheumatoid arthritis Arthritis is poorly understood. This study shows the presence of polyfunctional CD4-positive, CD8-positive T-cells already in individuals at risk for RA, as well as in RA patients, and further characterize these cells, broadening our understanding of T-cell involvement in the disease pathogenesis. So it's a study very much in line with the trend in rheumatoid arthritis research, trying to look at the development of disease and prevention of disease. They included synovial biopsies from 118 RA patients, 20 patients um, at risk of developing RA 
and 44 healthy controls. The methods used were RNA sequencing, flow cytometry, and fluorescent lifetime imaging microscopy. And one of the most striking findings was this highly polyfunctional CD4 positive, CD8 uh, positive T cells in um, individuals at risk of developing RE. So remember that normally we say that CD4 positive T cells are T helper cells and CD8 positive T cells are cytotoxic T cells. So these are cells sort of in between and the authors state that um, uh, these cells showed increased uh, utilization of oxidative phosphorylation, a characteristic of metabolically primed memory T cells. And time will tell if this constitutes an opportunity for therapeutic intervention in early RA. The next contribution is spondular arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, clinical research. The title of the paper is Secokinumab as a potential trigger of inflammatory bowel disease in ankylosing spondylitis or psoriatic arthritis patients. This paper was selected by Stefan Dinesco and he summarizes like this. Diagnosis of pre-existing IBD should be taken in careful consideration before initiation of an IL-17 inhibitor. This paper investigates if sequinumab is associated with an increased risk of new onset IBD. Overall, rates of new IBD in patients starting sequinumab were low, and the majority of patients with new onset of GI-related symptoms did not develop objective evidence of IBD or needed to stop therapy. Nevertheless, the majority of patients with pre-existing IBD diagnosis did experience GI-related adverse events, which supports the established treatment recommendations for AS and PSA. This was a study of 306 patients started on sequinumab. Uh, patient electronic and paper records commencing sequinumab from 10 UK hospitals between 2016 and 2019 were reviewed. Um, and the results were that 24 of these 306 patients experienced uh, uh, GI-related adverse events after starting sequinumab. And among these uh, patients, um, uh, four were diagnosed with definite IBD. Seven patients were diagnosed with probable IBD and 13 patients with possible IBD. And among the definite cases of IBD, all these patients were uh, patients with ankylosing spondylitis and two had pre-existing IBD. So recommendations um, is in line with established treatment recommendations that for patients with pre-existing IBD and ankylosing spondylitis, the risk of um, GI-related adverse events is much higher and uh, prescribing alternatives should be considered. And for the interactive uh, Twitter conversation, we want to learn your experiences. So here we ask the question, have you encountered new onset GI adverse events during IL-17 inhibitor therapy? The next contribution is pediatric rheumatology. The title of the, patient, uh, the paper is optimizing the start 
Time of Biologics in Polyarticular Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis, a comparative effectiveness study of childhood arthritis and rheumatology research alliance consensus treatment plans. So why did Leanne Kersley-Fleet choose this paper? She states, when comparing three treatment protocols for polyarticular JIA, achievement of clinically inactive disease without glucocorticoids did not significantly differ between groups after 12 months. And this is interesting as many assume that using biologics earlier in disease course is better to reduce the risk of long-term joint damage. So the unknown question here is that the optimal time to start biologics in polyarticular JIA remains uncertain. This was a prospective observational registry study comparing the effectiveness of three different treatment plans. The first plan was the step-up plan. This was initial non-biologic disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug as a monotherapy and then adding a biologic if needed. The second plan was the early combination plan. This was a DMART and biologic started together. And finally, the third plan was the biologic first plan, and this was biologic monotherapy. The primary outcome was clinically inactive disease uh, without glucocorticoids at 12 months. 400 patients were enrolled. 64% began the step-up plan, 25% began the early combination plan, and 11% began the biologic first plan. As this was an observational study, they had to do propensity scoring and multiple uh, imputation. Um, after doing these corrections, the ACR criteria was achieved in 37% in the early combination plan, in 32% in the step-up plan, and in 24% in the biologic first plan. So the conclusion is that achievement of clinically inactive disease without glucocorticoids did not significantly differ between groups at 12 months. The next contribution is patient perspective and patient education. The title of the paper is Telemedicine in Rheumatology, a mixed methods study exploring acceptability preferences and experiences among patients and clinicians. And this uh, contribution was picked by Lise Verhof, and she states why. This large mixed methods study among patients as well as healthcare providers shows that there is an overall preference for face-to-face -face consultations within rheumatology, although some of the negative experiences might be due to the COVID pandemic. And then she states that careful selection and choice of patients is key as telemedicine is convenient and acceptable for some rheumatology patients. Um, so this was a study um, combining analysis of surveys and in-depth uh, interviews. The study included surveys of um, 1,340 patients and 111 clinicians and interviews with 31 patients and 29 clinicians. Um, and the authors state that more training and further consultation with clinicians and patients is required to increase telemedicine's acceptability and safety. And if you want to join the Twitter conversation, we will at some point ask um, this question. 
Um, is there a future for telemedicine in rheumatology? So the next and final contribution is epidemiology. The title of the paper is All-Cause Mortality in Systemic Rheumatic Diseases Under Treatment Compared with the General Population, 2015-2019. to 2019. Um, Christiana Sierro Santos describes why she picked this particular paper. So this study shows that the availability of effective therapeutic options, treat-to-target strategies, and perhaps better control of cardiovascular comorbidities over the last years might explain similar survival rates in inflammatory arthritis and general population. Mortality risk among patients under treatment remains twofold higher for systemic lupus erythematosus and fourfold higher for systemic sclerosis compared with the general population. Especially male gender and younger age in SLE and systemic sclerosis are adverse prognostic factors, highlighting that they, uh, these patients need closer follow-up and more effective treatments. This was a population-based retrospective cohort study uh, with data on a little more than 11 million citizens. So this included more than 40,000 patients with RA, approximately 10,000 patients of ankylosing spondylitis, uh, 13,000 patients of psoriatic arthritis, approximately 10,000 patients with SLE, and approximately 2,000 patients with systemic sclerosis. And the conclusions were that the survival rates over five years in inflammatory arthritis um, are in ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis becoming comparable with the general population and for rheumatoid arthritis only slightly higher. Uh, and as mentioned, all-cause mortality is almost twofold higher in SLE and fourfold higher in systemic sclerosis. And if you want to join the Twitter conversation, we will ask what strategies can we implement to lower mortality in systemic rheumatic diseases. This is the end of this episode of the Immunet podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the show and found the content useful. Also, a big shout out to Luis Perez, Elise van Mulligan and Olena Simba for coordinating the collection of contributions. Also, very big applause to the editorial team, Renalini Day, Eduardo Prediletto, Simone Parisi and Leanne Kersley-Fleet. For more information on the highlighted studies, go to the Immunet website, immunet at eula.org. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook to keep being up to date with educational content and research opportunities. Thanks for tuning in.